morning. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing to walk through the book of Philippians in chapter 1, where the next few verses, verses 12 through 14, you can go ahead and flip there in your blue Bibles. It's on page 570 in your blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible to, to take home, at home, take that one. We want you to have a copy that you can read. Uh, but the text will also be on the screen. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were at a concert in Asheville. Um, I love Christian music. I so appreciate music and lyrics that exalt Christ and make much of Him. Um, but that's not exclusively what I listen to. There's other art out there that is uh, beautiful and, and good, and I like to enjoy that, and I love music. So we were at a show um, from an artist who very much is not a Christian, and we were, it was in Asheville. And the majority of the crowd was also very much not Christian. And you might be thinking, how do you know that? Did you talk to all of them? That's kind of judgy. Slow your roll. Wait for the rest of the story. So he played one of his songs. It's called Heavenly Father. It's got some uh, uh, religious uh, overtones in the, in the song. And uh, when he finished it, he said, now, just to be clear, this song is about the fact that there is no God. And this nation's going to be a whole lot safer when we embrace that as true. And the crowd just went, yeah, and just lost it. Was so excited at a message of atheism. And my wife and I were like, oh, (laughs) I did not see that coming. That's quite the turn. And uh, it was jarring, but it was kind of a small picture of where our culture is going. Uh, We're trending towards more of this kind of post-Christian, where uh, Western European kind of style of, of culture that's, uh, that's uh, uh, majority, definitely not Christian. I mean, if you poll my generation, millennials, uh, it'll turn out about 40% claim to be a Christian. And if you do some further polls and investigating just those claims, you know, just ask some basic questions like, all right, well, do you, you know, do you believe that Jesus is God? A lot of people will say, uh, uh, no. So, I mean, it's like, that's kind of a big deal. It's kind of central to our faith. So, like that, that 40% is just a claim. That isn't actually practicing biblical Christianity. The generation below me, Gen Z, over two-thirds say, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Whether that's atheist or uh, none, which is just no religious claim, or Islam or um, a Hindu. And this is kind of, this is where we're, we're going as a culture trend aligns, and the reason that's important for us to understand is that we're increasingly entering to a time where, I mean, goodness, the majority of the workforce does not claim to be a Christian at all, which means that there will be no advantage at all to claiming to be a Christian in this culture. None. In fact, it will disadvantage you to actually say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible is true. You start saying stuff like that, and, and it's going to get you into some, some hot water. There's no, um, there's no cultural cachet or no social benefit to saying, I believe in Jesus. Even more so, you will be criticized for it. So, what does that mean for us when we say that we believe the Great Commission that says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations? What does it mean for us that we're uh, commanded to and called to share Christ and declare the mystery of Christ? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that in a culture that's increasingly growing more hostile to Christianity, to the gospel, that there will be social repercussions. That we are actually going to 
If we're faithful in following Christ, we're going to suffer socially. And many of us, we just want to reject that. We, We don't want that. But what I want us to see very clearly today is that suffering, even when it's social and reputational suffering, is actually good. It's actually a gift. And that God uses it as an essential uh, avenue, an essential part of advancing and moving the gospel forward. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through these few verses. Let me read them and then we'll pray. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would help us. You'd help us be open to allowing the scriptures to go to work on our hearts so that we might be the people that you have called us to be, so that we might be a people who embraces the call to take the gospel forward, especially when suffering is involved. But Lord, in order to do that, we need the Spirit working in us to mold us and shape us and conform us into your image so we can be the kind of people that obey this calling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so that verse 12 starts, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, all right, let me sit in that for a moment. When he says, what has happened to me, certainly the main focus, which is clear from the context of this passage, is my imprisonment. My imprisonment's gonna be mentioned four times in this chapter. So clearly the most uh, clear to mind that he's making of the context is my imprisonment. But that certainly isn't all that's happened to him. And for the Philippians, who certainly would know his story, would know everything that has happened to him up until this point. They would have known about the fact that he was stoned to near death, that he was imprisoned in uh, Jerusalem, that he, had, he was the subject of death threats and the subject of riots, that he was shipwrecked and was wandering at sea, floating. He was snake bitten, all types of stuff that you can see in his story from the book of Acts and from other parts of his letters. He suffered immensely for his faith in the Philippian church was keenly aware of this. This is a church that we, as we saw in the first few weeks in walking through Philippians, as Chet was walking us through this, that this church loves him. They love Paul. Paul planted this church. They deeply love him. They would have followed his story and known all the suffering, and that would have brought forth a vivid picture of what he's been through in the same way that if you have a family member or a friend that you know has been through it, like they've had a rough life, a rough last few years, and they say, after everything that I've been through, that hits. It's like, oh, yeah, no, sister, you have been through a lot. That's what, I mean, so when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, it hits deeply, and right now his situation is his imprisonment, which in the Greek here, which is the original language this is written in, it literally is rendered my chains. It's my chains my chains, my imprisonment, and everything that he has endured is not an accident. It's not an accident that he is, at this moment that he's writing this, imprisoned. It's not an accident that he suffered all the things that he has suffered. 
It is the divine purpose of God. And he's going to give some reasons why here in a moment. He's going to give some reasons for his suffering. But in order for us to really embrace those reasons, we need to have an understanding and really a theology of suffering to build upon, that it was the divine purpose of God that Paul suffered. That in fact, God ordains, he plans for us to suffer. And many of us don't like that idea at all. So before we can engage the really specific reasons in the text that he's giving for his suffering, we need to have a more robust, a stronger theology of suffering to begin with. And I think that we as Americans, I think we're just weaker here. I think culturally we're weaker here. I think one of the reasons that we're weaker here is because for the last few decades, that the American church has been filled with all types and different shades of prosperity theology. And prosperity theology, which shows up in some of the biggest churches in America, some of the biggest evangelical followings all over the publishing industry. This idea that God wants you to have your best life here in this moment and really rejects suffering and ignores suffering altogether to maximize pleasure and joy in this life now is everywhere. And that false teaching, that ideology, it rejects suffering, which is crazy. Because suffering is at the very heart of Christian faith to begin with. I mean, our faith is built upon a God who loved us so much that he left the comforts of heaven to become a man and suffer, that he went to the cross and bore the full cup of the wrath of God the Father on a cross for our sins. Suffering is at the very heart of Christianity. It's at the very heart of the gospel. To reject that is ludicrous. Now, some will at least embrace some version of that and say, okay, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he suffered for us because he loves us, but he suffered for us because he loves us so that we can have joy now, so that we can have a great life now. He's for our good now. And it gets reduced to just that ease, good, riches, pleasure now. And that's all that it is. But when you read the scriptures, the opposite is true. It is not for our good now. Certainly, there may be ways that God provides for us now, which is ultimately, it's very good. But it's not the ultimately where this is going. The ultimate good is what is to come. In fact, God calls Christians to join him in his sufferings. And that our sufferings are actually for his glory. We just spent time in the liturgy earlier reading just that from Colossians 1. And celebrating that wonderful truth when Paul says in Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And as Chet was saying earlier, there's nothing lacking in the work and atoning work of Christ. This is the calling of Christians to join him and the future suffering of the church to join him in Christ's suffering, which, is, which started immediately when the church began. It's why 
all but one of the disciples was martyred for their faith, brutally killed for their faith. John, who was not, had a really rough time of suffering, boiled alive, survived, and eventually died in exile. I mean, Philippians, we're going to see later in chapter 3, verse 10, when it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I mean, this is what we get to do as Christians is the, is the posture of Paul, to share in his suffering. Sufferings, suffering is one of the grand themes of the gospel and the Christian life. And to argue against that is to argue with the scriptures entirely. No, no, no. Suffering is the fuel that enhances and advances the gospel. It is the fuel that enhances and advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think bad teaching in America, which I think that's part of the problem. I think another part of the problem is, is that outside of the church, we just have a built-in bias against suffering altogether. We culturally reduce the idea of goodness. We reduce it down to ease and prosperity and pleasure. This is part of the American dream. Maximize that, minimize suffering. And that kind of cultural ethos that, it, that infiltrates our minds, I think sets us up for failure in approaching the scriptures. I mean, when we read stories like the story of Job from the Old Testament, if you read the book of Job, which is, to put it in a nutshell, God allowing Satan to absolutely wreck Job's life. Family members, dead. Physical pain and suffering. Loss of wealth altogether. Allows that to happen. And we read that and we're like, oh, what? Whoa, mm, I, not like that. What, what, why? What's happening there? And if you keep reading through Job, you get to the end where Job starts questioning God. And God <laughs> looks at Job and says, I'm God, you are a man. I'm the potter, you are the pot. Who are you to question me and my infinite ways? End of the story. And we're more inclined with our Western ears to read that story and think God's the bad guy. And this is so much into us that we don't even realize it. And I think it's more unique to us than I think other cultures that have an easier time accepting this, that accepting that God would use suffering to advance the gospel. Other cultures, other churches across the world seem to have a better grasp on this. And I think part of it is, is because we've just really had it so easy here in America. I mean, compared to the rest of history, the rest of the world, but certainly the rest of history, we have, we have more money, we have less death, we have more comforts. We just do, by comparison, the goal of American life is to maximize those pleasures and to decrease anything that might be difficult. Which means that, not for everyone, but for many people, the most suffering we might face in a calendar year is my boss was super mean to me and I have a difficult time at work. Which isn't to say that's not hard in and of itself, it is. Having a terrible workplace is not fun at all. But comparative to the rest of human history and compared to other parts of the world, the suffering that we face is minimal by comparison. And, and we're insulated, we're regarded, we're not, we're, we don't efface the type of trials that would mature us and help us 
allow us to get to the other side and, and have more uh, grounded character uh, because our hope is in Christ. But this, we're, we're missing a lot of those sufferings and those trials that would actually do that refining work within us. It's one of the reasons why with my kids, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do is I'm trying to let them face some of their own battles. Like as a parent, I want to get in. I want to just block it. I just want to block it out. You know, I want to helicopter and say no. But that's bad for them. I want them to, to go through trials. I want them to, to go through uh, uh, difficult situations and figure that I want to give them advice and have them think through it. But I want them to, to, to run point on that because that's good for them. I would argue that part of the reason, and here where it's part of the reason why my generation and the generation below me has a lot of struggles with anxiety. Again, part of the reason, I'm not simplifying it down to just this, but I think part of the reasons that we have so many struggles with anxiety is because we were raised in a lot of helicopter parenty you know, environments where we were guarded from being able, I mean, you know, parents coming in and talking to the teacher for students, all types of different things that have kept us from adversity. But adversity should be embraced. It is good, it's what refines us, what makes us more mature. And, and we, we need that. And I think just culturally, not just our generation, but all of us, we just, we're so insulated from suffering that when it comes, we don't know how to handle it. We don't have the categories for it. And then when we read the scriptures and we understand that, no, 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 God has purpose for that suffering for your good. It's, oh, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. But I want to extend the invitation from the scriptures that says, no, 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 lean into it. It's a gift. It's a gift. And now he's going to show two reasons specifically why. Starting in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What he just said is that Christ is made glorious through suffering, that suffering is a vehicle for the gospel to advance. I love what one commentator says. He says, Paul thinks suffering not only accompanies the apostles' proclamation of the gospel, but it is a proclamation of the gospel. That's why he emphasizes it four times in this chapter. My imprisonment, my imprisonment, my imprisonment, my imprisonment. He's saying, no, 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 this is a wonderful gift for the gospel to move forward amongst the imperial garden, to move forward in those who do not believe. He's celebrating it, suffering. In conventional wisdom, human wisdom, our logic goes, I, I don't know. I don't think that's the best marketing plan. I don't, I don't know if I'd emphasize that. Like if you were in a city and you were coming out of a subway and all of a sudden there was a clipboard activist, which if you've ever been in a city, you've seen them. They've got their clipboard got their branded shirt, maybe their hat. And they stop you and say, hey, let me tell you about our movement. And if they told you, you should totally sign up for this movement, it means you're going to have less money. It means you're going to have, uh, you know, more difficult time. People, they're not going to like you. They actually might hate you a little bit. You're going to be seen as weird. And let me tell you something. If you sign up for the next level experience, we're going to send you across the world where you might get imprisoned and beheaded. You in? Conventionalism says, uh, no, nah, I'm good. I'll pass. I'll go on to the next thing. That's conventional wisdom. 
But Paul is saying just the opposite. He's like, no, suffering will advance the gospel. It's a great vehicle for moving it forward. I was reading a story this week from uh, two Iranian women, Maryam and Marzia. I'm, I tried so hard. I had Patricia even pronounce this. She sent me an audio how to pronounce their names, and I just, I just, it's no bueno. These ladies uh, became Christians. They became Christians. They converted, uh, they're Iranian. They uh, converted to Christianity from Islam. They met at a, a, uh, conference in Turkey, and they came back ready to advance the gospel. They started passing out uh, Bibles, which in Iran is illegal. I mean, converting to Christianity, Christianity is illegal, and, it's, uh, and evangelizing is, is even more illegal. That's how you get the death penalty there. But they're doing it, and they're passing out these Bibles, and they know throughout the years they're doing this that eventually... They might run into the secret police and it's game over. And that's eventually what happens. They're arrested, they're sentenced to death by hanging, they're thrown into the most brutal uh, prison in Iran. And the conditions of this prison, they, they document this in their book, Captive in Iran, are just subhuman. I mean, just completely disgusting, terrible, torturous. And while they're in prison, this is, this, I'm going to read from their book. This is some of their recounting. They said, most amazing of all, we were in the best place we'd ever been for witnessing to people hungry for the gospel of Jesus. We had spent ourselves and our resources traveling all over the country with the message of salvation, always mindful of the danger if the wrong person overheard us. Now, we were stuck in jail and God was bringing spiritual seekers in waves you say, now, now they're, just, they're coming to us. I mean, because if you're in prison and you have nothing, and you're in a brutal condition like that, you have nothing. You're ready to hear the gospel. You're ready to hear some actual grounded reality of hope. So they were bringing spiritual seekers in waves. The living conditions weren't very good, but we didn't have to deal with the travel and traffic, which that's a joke, you guys. <laughs> they're saying that the subhuman level of experience is like, oh, it's better than the traffic. And we could tell our fellow prisoners the story of Jesus openly because no one would come into this rat hole to spy on us. They embrace it. Like, no, no, no. This is an excellent opportunity for the gospel to go forward. And then they continue and they recount this story. It says, one day my interrogator became angry and asked why we were talking to the prisoners about Jesus. And I said, we talked to prisoners about Jesus because you arrested us and put us in prison. And prisoners are curious. They all want to know, why are you here? What is your charge? So we had to explain the gospel. Did you see what was embedded in their response? Their interrogator, probably torturing them, just says, why are you telling prisoners about Jesus? She's like, because you put us here. We'd be doing this on, on the streets of Tehran, like I... You, you put us here. That's why we're doing it, because we're Christians, and this is what we do. And it turns out, pretty fertile ground here. People are ready to hear about Jesus, so I think we're going to keep this up. Now, eventually they do get out of prison. They're actually, I think one of them lives in Georgia now. I can't remember where the other one lives, but just to have that, that heart and to be able to, to write a book to help people see it's worth it. 
that the cost is worth it. It is worth it to declare the mystery of Christ. It's wonderful. May we have the posture of our sisters who labor for the gospel like that. That's, that's what Paul's doing here in this text. That's what he's doing. He's in prison. And he's got fertile ground. He's got the imperial guard. But you can picture that, that he's got these Roman soldiers. You know, one comes in, stands guard. He's in house arrest. And they come in and he's like, all right, Johnny, what's up? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And he can't, he's just going to have to sit. He's going to stand guard. He's just going to have to listen. Can't go anywhere. Also, bonus, Paul's a Roman citizen, so they're not supposed to touch him. So he just... He's going to keep sharing the gospel. Next guy comes on shift. What's up, man? Let's pick up where we left off a few days ago. So much so that now the whole imperial guard knows about Christ. And he's embracing that, and he's excited for them. Now, I want you to imagine that you got to sit across the table from Paul. You're having a cup of coffee whatever it is they drank back then. And you're just talking to him, and he's just telling you story after story. Just, oh, yeah, this happened to us, got beat up, and then we did this, and the gospel went forward, and just the church blew up. And he just, boom, 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 and he looks at you, and he says, all right, so tell me, how's it going in America? What you doing? You, you, and you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm... So like the other day at work, um, I just, you know, we were, we were talking and I, I remembered something from the sermon and I was like, I just started talking about Jesus. My coworkers kind of looked at me weird and I was like, it got awkward. So I was like, I, you know, I changed the subject to football, but like I'm getting somewhere. Like, can, you, can you imagine Paul looking at us and being like, what? Huh? And it's, it's like, well, it's just hard. Cause like, I mean, they, 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 you know, I, I might be weird. I might do that. And it's like, he would be dumbfounded. He wouldn't know what to do with that. And it's not to say that being the weird person at work, it's not to say that the, 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 the social repercussions don't cost and they don't hurt and they don't sting. But I think he'd look at us and say, if you really believe that Jesus died for sinners and that those who don't know him are going to hell, then what are you doing? Do you actually believe this in a way that you might leverage your life into the workplace or in your neighborhood that we might declare Christ. And yeah, it, it may get awkward. And you may have a coworker that just is like, I, would you go for it and you share the gospel? And she didn't like it. And, you know, she might, it might get awkward for a, a little bit. They might talk about you behind your back. You might not get invited to the cool lunches or happy hour. It might happen. All of that hurts, it does. But by comparison to the rest of church history who are leveraging their lives to, the, to people right now in Iran and Algeria who are leveraging their life for the gospel, it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk of your reputation. It's worth the risk of our reputations because our lost coworkers and neighbors and friends and family are on a collision course with hell and we have the hope of Christ. So, it may get weird. I mean, I, guys, in college, I shared the gospel with this, with this guy one time, and, like, I went for it. Like, I just was like, I mean, I just, I, you know, he, the door was open, and I went for it. And he just was very angry. And that was it. Like, the whole rest of college. Like, he would see me on campus, and he, like, he would almost, like, turn and go the other way. And it was weird. 
And I'm not a great evangelist. It's not, it's not, I, don't have, I don't have that gift. I'm not the, the best at it. And I share with a lot of people that just, you know, there's no, a lot of no's. Not all, and everyone got awkward. Some people were like, no, let's, let's disagree. It's fine. But some people were like, yeah, no, it's, you're, not, you're, you're, you're not the coolest guy at parties. It's like, well, you haven't seen me at parties, but that's not, let's <laughs> not debate that right now. But what is it? I mean, I, I had lots of people that rejected Christ. And I also had a, a friend share the gospel with him, share the gospel with him, share the gospel with him, and eventually he finally believes. And he's still, to this day, following Jesus. He's married, lives in Texas, still loves Christ. And I think about the fact that a thousand years from now, We'll be together in the kingdom of God, the new heavens, the new earth, however long it takes to get there. And we'll be praising Christ. And he's not going to be suffering under the wrath of God. And I think of all the rejections that happen in comparison, whatever the ratio is, 30 to 1, 40 to 1, 50 to 1, 60 to 1. If you're a bad evangelist like me, maybe 100 to 1. And I think about all those rejections is it worth it? Is it worth it to see somebody who did not know Christ taste and see that he was good and take refuge in him and escape judgment and, and, and for the rest of eternity will be exalting Christ? The cost is worth it. It's worth it. Whatever social cost, whatever repercussions come with it, it's worth it. And listen, I have a hunch that I think that, that people are going to start responding in ways that we didn't see coming. I think our culture is so drunk on things that just don't matter. They're living their lives on, there's so much sinking sand all over the place. And people are trying the next pile of sand, the next pile of sand, the next pile of sand with no foundation to build upon. And I think they're exhausted and they're tired. I think they're hungry for something bigger than themselves. I think they're hungry for a narrative that's bigger than themselves. And we get to be the ones who declare it, whatever the cost may be. Suffering advances the gospel, and we should embrace that, whatever suffering God has for us. There's a second reason he gives in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That suffering is not only a wonderful vehicle to advance the gospel, it also blesses your church family. It blesses our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, they became confident because of my imprisonment. They speak bolder and without fear because of my imprisonment. He's trying to, he's trying to console the Philippians. No, 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 no. The church in Rome is just fired up right now. So my imprisonment, it's a good thing. It's encouraging them. And that's because testimonies inspire us to act boldly to act in faith courageously. You know, it's funny. If you read the letters of Paul, rarely do you see him command churches to share the gospel. You would think, knowing Paul, that he's all over the place giving imperatives and commands. Share the gospel. Share Jesus. He doesn't. There's like two places that I could find where it's, you know, do the work of an evangelist, Teach the word. He didn't say it much at all. But his letters are filled with stories. 
of him declaring the mystery of Christ. He had a big influence in the book of Acts with Luke. And those are story after story after story after story of, of, of sharing the gospel. Testimonies over and over again of what Paul was doing, of what the church was doing. And that's because these stories of faithfulness inspire. And stories of faithfulness in the face of great suffering, even more so. Because conventional wisdom does say that suffering's not a great marketing plan. That's true. Conventional wisdom, human logic says you probably shouldn't advertise the suffering aspect. But our God operates outside of that. And what happens is, is the Holy Spirit goes to work in those stories and emboldens the church. That when you hear of a, of a sister or a brother who's declared Christ in the face of great suffering, it fires us up. When you hear of a Nigerian brother or sister who had their family slaughtered for the gospel and continues to advance and advance and advance, when we hear that, it fires us up. The Spirit goes to work in that. And that's for a reason. It's what God does. So much so that, as the text says, much more bold to speak without fear. It's fearless, which, again, defies conventional wisdom because imprisonment and torture and martyrdom. And it's just, just, those are kind of fearful events. Would, would, would seem very normal to say, I'm a little scared. But they're boldly declaring it. They're boldly declaring the mystery of Christ without fear. That's what the Roman Christians are doing because they see Paul in prison and he's fearless. He's like, no. Oh, Who's in front of me? They're going to hear it. What, what can they do to him? They can take his body. They can't take his soul. These stories should embolden us to preach Christ, no matter the repercussions. Those are the two reasons he gives in this text for why we should leverage our lives to share the gospel. Suffering is a gift. It is an opportunity we can use our suffering for something bigger than ourselves. A faithful gospel witness that invites people into knowing Christ, regardless of what happens to us socially. Whatever the consequences may, that may come from it, we get to, we get to use the gospel. Use suffering to advance the gospel as a vehicle that will take it and we also get to, as we suffer, see those stories change people. I mean, think about it in your own the context of your own community group. You hear a story of someone in your group who's sharing the gospel with their neighbor or their coworker, and then five or six of them are like, mm, not weird, no, I'm good. And then one of them is like, oh, I was sharing it, but I could tell this person. They're like, hey, they started, they started, I could tell there, there was something there. So I took them to lunch later. And then we open up our Bibles together. And then, you know, they show up to group. And then a few months later, they're in a baptism water saying, I, I didn't know Christ, but she came up to me or he came up to me. And it was awkward at first, but man, I, I realized that I'm not a Christian, that I need Jesus. What's better than that? What's better than that testimony right there? And we get to do that over and over and over again. So the times, they are changing. Being a Christian, it's not an advantage like it used to be. If you are bold for Christ, it will come with consequences. You will suffer. Good. Good. 
And we should look forward to that, for the opportunity that flows from that. And faithfulness here will produce some beautiful opportunities for those that I think are just burnt out on this world. And they're burnt out on everything this world has to offer. So brothers and sisters, let's own this teaching to be a people that are faithful to share the gospel no matter the cost, seeing the moments of suffering as an opportunity for it to advance, and may it embolden this church to be the people that God calls us to be. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the faith and the zeal and the obedience to declare this gospel that saves. May you give me and break within me the reasons and the desire for approval that keeps me from being obedient. Would you break me of the busyness in my life that keeps me from being obedient to share the gospel? Would you help us see that suffering is a gift that advances the most eternal and lovely message that anyone could ever hear? And may you help us repent where we need to repent, trust you where we need to trust you, and not just hear something that convicts us for a moment that we walk away from, but that actually results in fruit, and that fruit results in eternities being changed. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to first remember what Christ did for us. The night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. And he took the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood that was shed for you, that as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. We remember what Christ did for us, celebrating that he saves sinners, that he saves us. And may we remember that someone along the way told us that message. May we remember that someone shared that good news, that some people shared that good news with us. And as we take the Lord's Supper joyfully worshiping our Christ, may we also in repentance be thinking about the coworker, the neighbor, the friend, the family member, the person that pops into your mind that's like they need Christ. May God break us of whatever it is that is within us that keeps us from doing what he calls us to do in sharing Christ. And may we own that cost and pray that God would give us the opportunity, and that if it does come with some suffering, he'd use it for his glory.